Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 203, recorded October 7th, 2020. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I am Brian Aachen. And this episode is brought to you by Datadog. Thank you, Datadog, for supporting us. PythonBytes.fm slash Datadog, and a lot of cool stuff out there. We'll tell you more about it later. Brian, can you believe we're like well into the 200s? Well, well, by three. Yeah, we're getting a good start already. Yeah. A month almost. Yeah, I guess a month because that's zero based, which is pretty awesome. Now, speaking of things that are awesome, DigitalOcean was a sponsor of the show for a while. But before they were sponsors, we actually just used them as, you know, hosting our infrastructure. And we still do. So when you download the MP3 or your podcast player talks to something, it's talking to our services on DigitalOcean and so on. And over there, we just have a set of virtual machines, some database server, some other things, and they, they manage themselves as kind of a cluster. And by manage themselves, I mean I manage them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they mostly take care of themselves, but I do have to log in and, and take care of them. But there are different ways of hosting your apps that don't require you to actually log in and configure servers and make sure they're all good and so on. Often that's called platform as a service. We also have Kubernetes clusters and things like that where you just say, here's a definition of my code please make it go on the internet, right? So what I want to talk about is DigitalOcean just launched a new app platform that is a platform as a service. And like I said, I'm a fan of DigitalOcean because they're simple and straightforward and affordable and easy to use, but really high quality. So I think that it's worth pointing out this new platform that they just launched. You're comfortable with doing your own, what, droplet or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. I'm not. So yeah. I'm kind of looking forward to trying something like this. And I've got a ton of different apps and they have inner connections within each other that they have to care about and like there's a lot of stuff where you know at some point it, it makes sense to go down that path with various things that all work together but if i just got an app and i wanted to get on the internet you know often you don't want to deal with or worry about those things or you know forget to apply an os patch or you know how many how many times i mean i'm large-scale vc funded professional web apps say we're going to be experiencing downtime for the next th 30 minutes or for yeah. four hours. I'm just like, what could you possibly be doing that takes four hours? I just, it's like boggles my mind that you're not able to do it better than four hours of downtime. And so platforms like this mean zero downtime deployment and things like that. So really, really neat. So they've announced this new app platform. I want to point out, this is not an ad. This is just something I think is cool. So I'm sharing with you. Yeah. So yeah. Neat. So they, they came up with this new app platform that, you know, you say it's pretty modern. It's like, how do you get your code into it? You point it at your GitHub repository. You don't like log into it and do a Git thing. You just say, I'm going to give you access to my source code and it will automatically deploy from that. That would be one nice way to get it over there and get it set up. But you also might want continuous deployment. So if I push, like how do you get a new version with zero downtime deployments and all that? Well, you just push to a particular branch that you decide upon and it automatically notices that and does a redeploy. Mm. That's pretty sweet. Like, so I have that for like TalkPython training. If I push to a production branch, it'll automatically do the checkout, ensure the requirements are built, recreate it. I had to write that. This just happened. This is just part of it, right? That's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to do that myself. I didn't either, but it was better than logging in all the time. So <laughs> this is built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes. Which is interesting because a lot of platform as a service type of things are just opaque. They're like, well, you can give us access to your code and we'll make it run magic. But yeah. really all this is, is 
they'll orchestrate running your code on top of their Kubernetes clusters, which means you can like def- define Docker files in your repository that are going to be part of the app that runs in Kubernetes. You can use some of the tools actually to talk to the underlying infrastructure. So it's not a closed environment. You can actually kind of get down to the infrastructure layer a little bit more. So all the, these things are pretty neat. It has automatic handling of traffic spikes for simple, simple, simple apps. For static apps, it's free for, for three of limit. Them. For three yeah. of them, right? For real apps, I guess, apps that run code like Python, you can pay five bucks for like a simple version, like on a shared server, or you can pay 12 bucks for a, a more pro version that has more features, CDN, SSL, all those kinds of things. And then if you want to scale it up, you can pay tons, right? You can pay like $150 to run it on a huge server or a bunch of different small servers. And there's a whole scaling thing that you can do, but there's a pretty decent offering. It's still not as cheap as running it on your own. But just like you said, a lot of people don't want to run it on their own and that's not their expertise. And why should they be doing that, right? Yeah, I would totally, like if you were uh, were to offer to do all of my server stuff for me, I would totally buy you dinner once a month. <laughs> yeah, so. and that's kind of the price, right? But this would be like a cheap dinner, like yeah. a muchos gracias type of, you know, enchiladas and a Coke, not uh, a filet mignon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just like a $5 gift card to Starbucks. Yeah, there you go. I could totally get two scones. Anyway, <laughs> if you were thinking about running your, uh, you know, I talked to so many people, students of the courses and stuff, and they're like, oh, I got my app, but now I got to put it online. Like, what a pain. Like, I can't get Nginx configured right or this other thing or so on. This is another solid option now that has a nice, you know, push to a branch, deploy, run your stuff, zero downtime. You know, it's probably most comparable to Heroku, I would say, in the Python ecosystem yeah yeah um, all right well people can check this out i think it's i think it's a cool offering i will not be personally using it because there's a bunch of little gotchas like you know it would be better if right <laughs> for example i don't want to use their hosted postgres database i want to run a mongodb server which is fine it's no problem you can do that there but you can't like what i do on the mongodb server is in order to talk to it you have to be within a white list of known ip addresses that the server's the web servers and API servers have, right? So there's like 10 APIs in the world that can talk to that server and no others. The thing is with these Kubernetes clusters, when you push redeploy, it will regenerate it and rehost it potentially somewhere else. And the IP address keeps changing. So you can't do things like have a custom database server that has, you know, firewall limited, restricted, like VPN type of stuff. Those types of things don't exist. Most people probably don't care. I care, so I'm not doing it. (laughs) You can't do Mongo with... You can do Mongo, but you would have to have the MongoDB database port listen on the open internet rather than be restricted to just a few IP addresses. Maybe they figured this out and it's buried in the fine It's something that, like, there's a whole conversation about, like, here's the things we're going to add, here's the things that it doesn't currently do, here's some workarounds, et cetera, et cetera. So, anyway, there's a whole conversation. You can check it out. But if you do things like use their hosted database, which would make sense in a pass type of story, you don't have these problems, right? They automatically right. wire that stuff up. Because when you want to break the rules, you get in trouble. <laughs> so you're a fan of Shakespeare, is that right? Head down to Medford. <laughs> I've never Ashland, been. Sorry, it's Ashland down there. You can, Ashland, there's a yeah. whole like Shakespeare week. and yeah. Is Ashland still there with the fires and all? God, I hope so. Yeah. No, I've always wanted to, but. People that don't live in Oregon have no idea what we're talking about, but there's a small town uh, in Southern Oregon that does um, a lot of Shakespeare plays. And that sort of transition was because uh, 
I want to talk about Playwright. <laughs> so Microsoft uh, put out an announcement announcing Playwright for Python. I was trying to look look into this. I didn't. I guess I quite haven't quite got that whether or not Playwright was a thing before Playwright for Python or or not. But in any case, it's a Microsoft thing, and it's a way to drive and and test um, your web application through easily. So uh, it's end-to-end testing solution. Uh, it's open source and whatnot. But uh, in their announcement, it's a pretty cool uh, announcement. It gives examples and everything. So I'm going to read their pitch. The pitch for it is, with the Playwright API, you can author end-to-end tests that run on all modern web browsers. Playwright delivers automation that is faster, more reliable, and more capable than existing testing solutions. And I'm guessing by existing testing solutions is a nice way of them to say <laughs> we are better than Selenium. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking as well. So there's already a PyTest plugin. There's um, runs on Python, and there's a little. Um, we've said that we like animated gifs of uh, of uh, how it works, <laughs> and on their announcement page, there's a little animation, and I was actually pretty impressed with with that little bit. There's a you can so you can drive drive it even from a command line or a interactive shell you can uh, drive the drive some playing with it which is nice so uh, a few of the benefits apparently it's timeout free automation so this playwright automatically waits for the user interface to be ready before you act on it again i know there's some workarounds and there's some some wrappers on top of selenium that do that also but this is built into the system it's intended to stay modern with emulation of mobile viewports geolocation web permissions you can automate scenarios across multiple pages. I don't really test websites that much, but I didn't know that that was difficult before. So apparently, that's easier now. Uh, cross platform, of course, or cross browser, of course, because you got to test against different things. They use a Chromium driver for Chrome and Edge emulation, WebKit driver for Safari, and a Firefox driver. And supposedly, the Safari rendering driver even works on Windows and Linux, so you don't actually have to have an Apple computer to do that. So PyTest compatible and Django compatible. I'm sure it's compatible with lots of other stuff too, but the examples on the announcement show PyTest examples and Django examples, which is cool. They even mentioned that, uh, of course, uh, you can run this from your continuous integration server and uh, including GitHub Actions and others. So You, you must be happy to see that it's PyTest, like natively PyTest friendly. Like with fixtures and whatnot. I love that. That's that. Obviously, it, we're to the point now where if you have a new testing tool, you may as well in the announcement tell people whether or not you can run it with PyTest because people are going to ask. But that's a good state to be in in the Python yeah. world, I think. So, for example, like a the simple "Hello World" sort of test is just go to make sure that you get like a header text on a page. So it says define a function which takes a page with type annotations. By the way, double props for that. So page. And then that's already a fixture from the framework in PyTest. So it automatically passes that over setup. You just, all you do is say it takes a page and page go to URL, assert page.intertext of h1 equal equal, you know, the text you're looking for. There's also more like that you could do with like beautiful soup like stuff, but there's yeah, more of the kind of drive it. Yeah, go ahead. That's a two lines of code for a test to make sure that something's on a web page. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty slick. And the, the fixture bit is neat. You can also go and like, do a test a login. So create, get a new page, go to the URL, do page.fill, give it a CSS selector for the username field, the input field, give it a CSS selector for the passwords they fill it with that, 
and then click where the text of a button equals login. You don't have to do the CSS stuff or anything. Just find me a button or a thing or a URL that has the text login and click that and it's off. And so like one of the examples here is it does that first and then it logs in and it creates a session that remembers that it's logged in for the rest of the testing. So that's like one of the setup phases, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Let me throw out one other thing. You talked about uh, Chromium as one of the drivers, right? So a lot of times when you're doing Selenium, I don't know about this, but it looks the same. You know, you have to install Chromium and then there's like a little hidden one. You can also do the Firefox browser for uh, Selenium. But I was talking to the guys that Attila from uh, Scraping Hub on TalkPython, and he pointed out that Scraping Hub makes a headless browser specifically designed to be a headless browser called Splash. So their headline is, the headless browser designed specifically for web scraping turn JavaScript-heavy web pages into data. So I don't know how much better that is, but it's, it's interesting to think that you can swap out these browsers, and here's a cool example as well something that maybe people don't know about. Yes, I listened to that episode and thanks for reminding me. I was like, I got to check that out. Sounds yeah, like- I do too, but I haven't checked it out, but it definitely looks <laughs> neat. So this though, I like it. I mean, it looks at least as neat as Selenium. I don't know. Maybe it's even better. So pretty cool. Yeah. Also cool, Datadog. They're actually sponsoring the show. Not unlike DigitalOcean, where I just found something that I like from someone who happened to be a sponsor, but Datadog are sponsoring the show, not making them any less cool. So let me ask you a question. Do you have an app in production that's slower than you like? It's performant. It's maybe it's all over the place, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. Here's the important question. Do you know why? With Datadog, you will. You can troubleshoot your app's performance with Datadog's end-to-end tracing. Get detailed flame graphs, identify bottlenecks and latency in that finicky app of yours. Be the hero that got your app back on track at your company. Get started with a free trial. And I believe they send you a t-shirt, a little cool t-shirt still over at pythonbytes.fm slash datadog. So, Brian, something we haven't spoken about nearly enough is async IO and async and await. Should we touch <laughs> on that a little? Sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've talked so, about it some. Some. I believe some, maybe. So, one of the things that async IO is for, I mean, if you look at the name, it's around waiting on IO, waiting on external things like network calls, API calls, and so on, right? Oh, I thought it was just trying to be cool, like all yeah. the .io. It could be that, or it could just be like the Italian pronunciation. Esinchio. Esinchio. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. So when I think of files, I think of IO. Like if somebody said, what is IO? I would think file IO. That's the first thing I would say. And yet Python doesn't have built-in support for asynchronously working with file IO. That's bizarre, right? Yeah. It is. I believe there's an external package. I think I saw it somewhere on like awesome async IO or some list like that, that somebody had built something along those lines. But there's a cool article called asynchronously opening and closing files in async IO by Chris Wellens. Nice. So he wrote this and said, look, async IO has great support for networking, subprocess, interprocess communication stuff, but no file operations like opening, reading, writing, and closing files. And if you're talking to something that might take a long time, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got a pretty raging SSD on both my computers. So maybe yeah. I don't need this. Unless you're at that corporate, maybe you're logged in through a corporate VPN and you've mapped a network share over to your drive and then you try to read from that, all of a sudden your your file I.O. might get super slow, right? Well, even on SSDs, file I.O. is slower than memory reads. My, yeah, yeah, it's much slower. So 
there's certainly situations where this could be extreme, like the network one, but you're right, even normal file IO can be slow if you're really looking to like squeeze out the most concurrency. So basically he wrote a little article working through it, and it's ridiculously short, actually, on how you can do this. Right. So basically he says, look, if I use open, open file in Python, I would as a decent Pythonic bit of code, typically I would write with open thing as file IO object, right? File stream. Yes. Let's build that for something we're going to call a open, which is an asynchronous one. And it's kind of bizarre and weird that Python has this, but it does. And I think it's neat. It has an async with blocks. When you do async things that have to be asynchronously managed within context managers. So okay. he said, let's write this. So it implements the async with style, which is really simple. You basically implement a couple of methods instead of dunder enter, dunder exit, you do dunder a enter, dunder a exit, and so on. Okay. And then he says, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to define a function that just opens the file. Super easy. But then we're going to run it in an async IO event loop by saying run in executor. And what that means is async IO will create a thread pool where it's going to run over on a background thread. And then it just runs that and lets you await it. And that's basically it. Wow. Isn't that neat? That's not much code. No. It's like the opening bit is one, two, three. It's six lines of code, including the function name, which has to be there. The five lines of writing code. Yeah. And one of the things I like about this is um, not because I really want to do async file stuff. It's because um, it's a neat, neat little example that I can get my head around so that if I have some other process or other slow thing, that I want to make asyncified, this might be an example to how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is super instructive and interesting. I'll also throw out that there is an AIO files package. I think it's files, plural. Maybe it's file? No, file, singular. AIO file, which you can pip install and then just do this instead of like see the tutorial. But the I think the value here is like, well, what else doesn't have async support and what could I just kick over to a thread, but then integrate into async IO event loops. Yeah. It's nice. Indeed. You know what else is nice? Excel. Like so many people who can't do any programming or any scripting or anything, they can just go to Excel and like drag a droppy, a little, uh, uh, you know, a formula and paste it over and then they're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> except, except what? So, except, so it, this, wait, except it's 2020. That's the problem. Yeah. So this, this is only tangentially related to Python. Mostly it's that people start using databases in Python, stop using Excel so much. This article, we had a lot of people actually um, say, did you guys see this? Yeah. So uh, yeah, lots of people brought this up to us. I've got an article that um, I picked. There's a bunch of articles also, but I picked a BBC dot com article because it didn't have very many ads so the bbc article says excel why using microsoft's tool caused covid19 results to be lost wow so there's a uh, apparently if you haven't heard about this apparently there were sixteen thousand coronavirus cases that went unreported in england the good news is, is they well sort of good they they did only it only took like a few days for somebody to, to notice this but there is a few days where where there was some stuff not getting tracked right. And so, policy was like, hey, things are getting better. We're trending down. This is amazing. Yeah. Except. No. <laughs> except yeah, so Excel just, just didn't read it. <laughs> so apparently what you had, you had uh, several commercial fir testing firms filling out CSV files and sending them to, I forget the the name of the place, something, some 
health organization in England that was uh, pulling all this stuff together. And they were pulling it together by putting it all in an Excel XLS template that could be then uploaded to a central system and made available to NHS test and trace team, as well as other government computer dashboards. But the use of the XLS template made it so that there was a limit of 65,000 rows. Actually, that just gives me nightmares to think of a 65,000 row Excel spreadsheet. But apparently that's the limit. Nobody quite noticed that they'd hit it. It didn't say anything about failing. And uh, people noticed, uh, some people said, well, you should have used XLSX because that increases the limit by 16 times. But still, Excel for this? Of course, I was thinking, why are you doing this in Excel? And in this article, they had a quote from Professor John Croft, Crow, sorry, Crowcroft from the University of Cambridge. He says, Excel is always meant for people mucking around with a bunch of data on their small company to see what it looked like. And then when you need something more serious, you build something bespoke that works. There's dozens of other things that could do, but you wouldn't use an XLS. Nobody would start with that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. Apparently, apparently people did, though, and so people should be using Python. Yeah, yeah. that's not good. That is not good. So <laughs> I think there's a really interesting trend of moving towards things like pandas to answer these questions, right? Yeah. I don't think that's the answer for everybody, right? Like, oh, well, Excel is kind of clumsy for you. So here's what you should do is you should learn a whole bunch of programming, right? I mean, here's a random story that I would, one of the more frustrating things from my corporate days is when I was doing training, we would have to write proposals to send off to clients. And like, here's what we're going to cover. And here's what we're going to teach. And here's your goals. And, and here's the timeline and so on. And I would send that off as a Word document and work with one of the salespeople I worked with. And they said, They'd send it off to the client and some, something had changed. It's a Word doc, like a docx. It said, oh, Michael, I need you to replace this word with that word. And so she sent me the document back and asked me to replace that word with that word. I'm like, do you not know about command R or control R? Like, or whatever the replace hotkey is. And <laughs> why would you ever send me a file and just say, I need this word to do a find and replace with that one. But I need to do it first. I was just like, so anyway, I'm thinking of that person using Excel. Like you would, I would never suggest that that person learn it. That said, a lot of Excel power users, I think, would do really well to adopt Jupyter Lab and Pandas and stuff. And actually, Chris Moffat, who does Practical Business Python, just did a webcast with us over. We talked about it before, but it's, the recording's up now. You can check that out, and that'll give you some concrete tips to avoid the Excel if possible. Oh, nice, good resource. Yeah, no, that yeah. Links in our show notes. Yeah, would you be a fan of uh, getting documents sent to you and asked to do a finer in place on a word? I've totally had that happen. Yeah. <laughs> insane. Like, I sent you the doc. You could just, I mean, maybe send it back to me and say, say hey, I made some updates and here's my updates if you need to store the, the Yeah, exactly. Version. Yeah, just make sure I did it right, maybe. But, I mean, it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. I'm sure everyone out there has a story like that of, you wouldn't believe what I had to do in my, <laughs> my corporate job. So this next one comes to us from a listener, Prison Daniel, who's given us lots of cool feedback and ideas. And this one is called Locust.io. This is actually a pretty good pairing with Playwright. Okay. okay? So Playwright is oh, about yeah. validating that what is on the web page makes sense. I can go log in and press the button. And then I go to this page and this text is here. Something like that, right? As yep. a continuous integration. 
So Locus is about, okay, you know that works. What if 10 people do it at the same time? What if 100 people do it at the same time on our current infrastructure? Yeah. You hear about things like the whole healthcare debacle where they spent hundreds of millions of dollars of code on code on these projects and like a few people logged in and it just failed. And you just wonder, like, could you just tried it? Just maybe just seeing, like, if we call that API 10 times a second, will it actually take it, right? And so tools like this are exactly what you want. It's really cool for just simulating accessing a bunch of different sites. I was just thinking one good use for this may have been, sorry to interrupt, maybe the schools could have done this before they had yes. everybody log in so that everybody, all the kids on their laptops or their tablets wouldn't have uh, said on day one, I don't know what's going on. It won't let me I, in. Yeah, the, I, the page won't load. It just, it keeps giving yeah. me the numbers, 500. Is this a math class? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, exactly. So you should test your code. And so I've used these before, these types of tools. And often it's like, okay, what you're going to do is open a web browser and you're going to go to the site and it'll record like the URLs and you can like use some weird like selection syntax. Like it's weird, clumsy, gooey. Maybe it stores it as XML, but you have like a UI on top of it. And it's all crummy. And they probably charge you a ridiculous amount of money for this. So here's the thing with Locus. It basically looks like you're writing like unit test code. So if you look at the, there's an example in the show notes, just check that out. So what you do is you define a user and then you give the user some tasks or some behaviors. Oh, this is the one that I was thinking of. Sorry, I was confused this with your playwright. So for example, with the user, like you would say something like self.client.post to log in. And you just give it a dictionary. Username is this. Password is that. Boom. That's it. And that will actually go over there and submit the login form with that data, which is pretty awesome. And then you give it tasks. And these are kind of like tests. Like go to the index page, do a get on slash and do a get on the JavaScript. Go to the about page and do a get on slash about. Or, you know, go click this button or go make this thing happen. And then once you have this, then you can turn that into like a bunch of distributed parallel requests to see if you get any 500 errors, timeout errors, like what the average latency is for 10 users, 100 users, 1,000 users at a time. You can run it on distributed machines. So you can have it simulate millions of users if you want to run it on like 20 cloud VMs or something like that and turn it on onto your website. What do you think? I think this is cool. And you you were saying that there's a game website that's using this? (laughs) There is. In the notes, they they say when they talk about the features, they say, look, you can define user behavior in code, just plain Python code, which is neat. It's scalable, so you can run it, like I said. And then it's (laughs) (laughs) battle-tested because Locus has been used to simulate millions of simultaneous users on Battlelog, the web app for Battlefield games. And so they could say, you really could say, Locus is battlefield battle tested. (laughs) Nice. I don't know if anybody's seen the trailer for the Battlefield games. I've not been paying attention to it for ever, but for many, many years at least. Wow, these games have come a long ways. Like if you watch the trailer for the latest one, that's crazy, crazy stuff. But it's kind of also beside the point. I think this way (laughs) of saying like, this is what a website user does. They log in and then they go to this page and I might also visit this page. And you set up things like not just, I want to have... So when you answer questions like, how many users can we support? Typical users are not like pathological. They don't go to like your account page and hold down command R or control R and just refresh it as hard as they can, right? They'll go there and they'll spend like three or four seconds, five seconds, and then they'll go to another thing. They'll spend 10 seconds there. Then they'll go off and they'll click this button, right? They'll have normal human behavior. So one of the things you set up in this class you define 
that represents a user on your site is the wait time. So say the wait time is between five and 15 seconds. And then you ask, can it take a million users? It doesn't just do a million concurrent requests. It has like a million of these things randomly waiting between five to 15 seconds as they're kind of like interacting randomly with your site. Oh, cool. So you you could sort of scale this then. You could start with something like some long wait times and make sure that it can handle like a thousand users or something and then yeah. gradually make it shorter so that it's hitting on your server harder. Yeah, exactly. I think this is really neat. So yeah. I don't know that I would necessarily be using it right now, but if I create something new, especially something I'm sure is going to get a lot of traffic, then I would definitely use this. It looks really neat. It's free and open source. Like it's write it in Python. Like why the heck not? The only reason I wouldn't use it now is I've already had like, some really big spike events. I'm like, okay, well, it's, you know, everything's running at like 2%, 5% CPU. It's like, it's fine. I don't need it. You can totally see. I mean, there's a huge use case for this is that like people that have the, they're rolling out a new app or even if they're an existing company rolling out something new and everything looks fine on their server, even when they're testing with like two or three consecutive tests or something. But are we ready to roll it out? We don't know how many people are going to hit it. So they can sort of, gauge that the, the one that i always have in mind when i think about this is you've got some app that's been out there and it's, it's kind of getting some traction your company's getting some traction in it and the company decides we're going to run a super bowl ad or we're going to spend we're going to launch yeah. some huge marketing campaign on black friday that's like un like way way out of bounds of what we normally do the last thing, I mean, you only get one shot for your app to work when that Super Bowl ad runs or on that Black Friday event. If it just goes down for that little bit of time, it's not like, well, we got it up. It's fine now. It's, you've lost that moment and that million dollar spend or whatever the heck it turns out to be. So it's like those moments where the spike is unknown, but also the time to which you get to deal with it is short. Yeah. Or things like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the uh, healthcare marketplace website's <laughs> ready. It's fine, yeah, sure, Mr. President. This is going to be fine. It won't be like blemish your record for all of history. All right. Speaking of things that I'm sure are going to be fine, Hacktoberfest was such a. It's a good idea in theory, potentially. We're like in in middle October or deep into October already. I, I don't know how your repos did, but I got a lot of attention. Did you? Yeah. Oh no, God. mine. Yes, mine didn't so much. I'll tell you about that. But go ahead and tell tell people where we're going with this. Okay, so Hacktoberfest. Uh, hopefully, you know about it. But if you don't. It's an interesting idea sponsored by DigitalOcean and other sponsors. Again, DigitalOcean not sponsoring this episode. Overall, it's a good idea. So the idea is to encourage people to contribute to open source by bribing them with a t-shirt and other swag. That works for geeks. We love our t-shirts. Like, yeah. how else are you going to be like wearing your clothes? What do you put in your closet? Yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> you can buy a t-shirt with a half an hour of work, but we're going to like have you work for like hours and <laughs> just get one t-shirt. Anyway, there's always been some spam with this, people abusing it, but I think it was not as prevalent as this year. But what happened this year, and uh, I'm going to link to a, a video by Anthony Satilli titled, What's Wrong with Hacktoberfest? He introduces what Hacktoberfest is, some of the problems, and he recommended some solutions. We're not going to cover those today. But apparently there was a YouTuber this year, I think it was in India, that did a video on how to get a free t-shirt by doing, like, it's basically how to get free t- free swag with not much work. And he did this video to show you how to submit a pull request to a project and only do things, something like update the readme to say an awesome project or change it's with it is or something like that. 
and then do a pull request saying uh, document or improve docs and do that for four different repos. And there you got a t-shirt. Yeah. I met many of these people. (laughs) It turned (laughs) into a big problem. So uh, I was actually really thrilled with uh, how fast DigitalOcean and whoever's uh, working on Hacktoberfest fixed it, or at least hopefully, I'm sure people are still trying to do this, so I'm sure there's a lot of spam going on, but they changed the rules. So as of the third, they updated the rules to uh, try to reduce the spam. One of the big things is uh, maintainers can opt in by adding a Hacktoberfest topic to their repo. So a whole bunch of stale old repos won't get hit, hopefully. And then also you can you can mark any PR that's dumb as invalid and it invalidates stuff. And actually, the the full rules is, uh, let's see, I'm gonna it, we're gonna have it in the show notes. It's a little uh, little pseudo code. So if you submit a PR in the month of October and the PR is labeled as Hacktoberfest accepted by the maintainer or you submitted it to a repo with a Hacktoberfest topic and the pull request was merged or it was approved. So you can't just submit it and get your t-shirt. It has to be like some maintainer has to say, yeah, this is good or I approve it or whatever. It's not automatic anymore. And also if you are a maintainer and you're, and you've dealt with all the spam, sorry about that. But also I'd like to, I'd like to encourage more people to do Hacktoberfest because it's a cool thing. I didn't want to bring it up before because I didn't want to encourage spam, but I think these uh, changes will help. And if you're a maintainer, please be sure to do those uh, notifications by November 1st, because that's the deadline. So Yeah, interesting. I I had no idea what was going on until I saw Anthony Fatili's post or Twitter message. You know, somebody came over to some of the... I have 222 repositories, most of which are public between the courses and various other things. So there's a bunch of uh, opportunity to go in and make changes, right? So somebody came along to the beginner, uh, the Python for Absolute Beginners course and said, I would like to add a few little tips for some beginners to make this slightly better. You know, we can't change anything because it needs to match what's in the video. But if you had a little section that had like some tips and they were meaningful, sure, I guess that's okay. And then the next day I woke up and there were like 10 PRs, not necessarily all from this person, but from a bunch of different people with weird things like change the readme from this, you know, check out our latest course to check out the latest course and just changing like the word our to the, and I'm like, what is going on? Then I saw Anthony's thing and I'm like, okay, close, 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 close. <laughs> just, just straight out. Like, I don't even want to talk to these people. This is super annoying. And they weren't just making changes to the readme. They would go in and they would make changes to like XML configuration documents. I'm like, you can't change that. That's that, that's machine. That's read by the machine, right? That's going to break something if I accept this. Not only is it like annoying that I got to deal with it, but if I were to accept it, I'm pretty sure it would break. I think maybe it was like formatting, like putting a node closing node bit, like on on a line above or, or like putting a space. I mean, I don't think it actually broke it, but it was really weird stuff. And I didn't understand it was coming from Hacktoberfest. I was being hacked by the Hacktoberfesters. <laughs> Yeah. But it has stopped since they made these changes, which is great. Oh, has it stopped? So most of that stuff was in the first few days? Yeah, I haven't seen it the last couple of days. I didn't realize that's probably because the rules changed. I just went through and like just denied everything that I saw coming in. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they forced the takedown of that video. Maybe it's gone. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? But. Who knows? Well, I know that that's it for all of our main topics. Got anything else you want to throw out real quick before we wrap it up with a, a joke? I don't. I could totally use a joke. But do you have any extra things? I do. There's a really cool conference. It's, I believe, theoretically was supposed to be this 
year in Vancouver, BC, which is an absolutely wonderful town to visit called Pi Cascades, cycles between Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland. Well, this year it's taken a diversion to cycle to the internet because 2020, although it's in 2021, like still planning now. So Pi Cascades 2021 will take place uh, Saturday, February 20th from the world. I don't know if they're having any local stuff going on, but um, anyway, it's basically a virtual conference and the call for proposals is open. So if you'd like to give a presentation there, you can do that by November 10th, submit your proposals. So that would be cool. You know, I think talking at get togethers like this, meetups, the smaller, not, you know, full blown PyCon, but Pi Cascades and other types of events are a really good way to sort of raise your profile and stretch your, your comfort zone as a developer. So I encourage people to do it. Also, yeah, Patricia, I, I spoke at, um, at the 2020 version that was just before the world fell apart. <laughs> That's right. I was there. Uh, my daughter and yeah. I watched from the back. It was great. Next thing, other thing, Patricio Reins, Reins, who is a researcher at the Barcelona Supercomputing Center, which by the way, they have this virtual tour he sent me. Oh my God, it is so awesome. They have like a pop song for it. It is held inside, is the, the super, literally the supercomputer is inside an old cathedral. Wow. So like where, you know, where all the arches are and where the sermons would have been given, like that's where the supercomputer is. That's pretty awesome. Can we put la- that link in the show notes too? Yeah, 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 I'll put it in there. Yeah. But that's not why he sent it to me. He just said, <laughs> hey, I happen to work here and I use Jupiter a lot. You spoke about black cell magic and then another black formatter plugin for Jupyter Notebooks. So he said, you should also check out NB Black, NB underscore Black, which works okay. in Jupyter and Jupyter Lab. And there's another one that only works in Jupyter Lab called the Jupyter Lab Code Formatter. So just like always, we mention one thing that we kind of discover and then listeners are like, that's great. And, and, and here's a bunch of other stuff. So thank you for that, Patricio. Yeah, nice. But I love that. Yeah. I like the multiple tool thing. That's fine. Yeah, indeed. All right, let's do a joke. I've chosen some very uh, clear ones that actually have a, a visual component, as you know. I don't know why I do that, but that's what I've done. So, <laughs> so I why don't up. you, I'll let you do the first one. I'll do the second one. So, the way, people who don't know, this is a classical programmer painting. And the idea is this is a legitimate, real painting from some museum. Typically, okay. they're hundreds of years old. But there's, instead of having, you know, like, flowers in the the tide pools or whatever some random thing that the artist named it it's renamed with a programming title <laughs> okay yeah so why don't you quickly def- describe your picture and then tell us the the title okay so uh the picture is it's a white kind of a white gray background uh i think it's snow or something there's some horses there's a white running. Out blizzard almost yeah it's horrible yeah and there's some horses running two horses running pulling a what, like a sled or something? I don't know. And there's somebody laying on the sled. All right, what's the title? Delivering a feature in the time of a code freeze. <laughs> this is by Anthony Petrowski, Oil on Wood, 1883. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> All right. So the one that I got here, it's these three guys. They look highly skeptical, almost like they're on some kind of mission, sneaking out of like really tall grass on a boat in some kind of swamp. You can see them like really slowly sort of approaching. And the title is Red Hat Enterprise Linux Sysadmins Entering the Docker Convention Floor. Oil on Canvas, 1882. <laughs> Isn't that a That's great awesome. one? Like, look at their face. Yeah. Uh, now, people yeah. got to check this out. Uh, click on the link in your podcast player and see it. 
they're like angry pirates in a canoe. Yeah, it's sort of a piratey feel to it. Like they're like, oh, what are we doing here? We're breaking in. It's such a weird world. This Docker and Kubernetes. I love this thing of like programmer quotes on old, on paintings. It's a uh, it's funny. Yeah, if there's ever some sort of like artwork exhibition at a PyCon, this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could probably do it virtually somehow. Try to do it at oh. a virtual conference. Yes. I think we could. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for being here as always. And thank you everyone out thank there you. who's listening. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.